This is an ABC podcast. Are we all greenies now? It used to be a term of derision, a label given to people who exaggerated the importance of the environment at the expense of human activities. But as we see the result of unbridled human activity, from climate change to species extinction, we're confronted with the inconvenient truth that humans are part of the natural world and our survival depends on the natural world. So how did we come to be so disconnected from nature? I'm Paul Barclay, and in this Big Ideas, what plants can teach us about living in harmony with the planet? Professor Vanessa Lem is the Executive Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University. In this lecture, she discusses how philosophers have described where humans sit in the scheme of things, from the ancient Greeks to the French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre. Vanessa begins with Sartre's challenge to the rationalist school of reason and science. I want to begin with an image, uh, more precisely a a vision taken from Jean-Paul Sartre's first novel, Nausea. This is the famous chestnut root scene from which the novel draws its name. The scene is among one of the most disturbing pieces of literature in 20th century fiction. And I have chosen this scene because it is paradigmatic of the feeling of uprootedness that defines our contemporary experience in the industrialized and globalized world. Sitting on a bench on a public garden, looking at the root of the chestnut tree, Roquetin, the hero or rather anti-hero of the novel, suddenly has a vision that profoundly alters his sense of identity and understanding of his place in the world. I will read the citation. I was sitting stooping over head bowed alone in front of this black knotty lump entirely raw frightening me then i had this vision the metaphor of the root as an image to describe our place in the world is as old as the as the history of humanity roots or rootedness have traditionally been used to symbolize our distinct place in the world our origin and destiny Roots also signify our embeddedness within a culture and language, our relationship to land and home, family and the divine. Politics often uses the root metaphor for ideological purposes and to mobilize people. And this is not surprising for, after all, root and radical share the same etymology. So, for example, Karl Marx, he said, it's a very famous quote, To be radical is to grasp the root of the matter, but for the human being, the root is the human being itself. So Sartre's choice of the chestnut root as a place for a radical rethinking of the nature of the human being and its responsibility in the world is inscribed in this history of humanity. However, Sartre completely reverses the traditional use of this metaphor. In Nausea, the encounter with this chestnut root lays bare our human uprootedness. It becomes the place of a radical breakdown of our worldview and identity. More specifically, the chestnut root scene is emblematic of Sartre's critique 
of modern rationalism and its founder, René Descartes. Descartes is famous for his attempt to base all knowledge on the certainty of the I think, therefore I am, which I'm sure you've come across this phrase at some point in your life. The discourse on method from which this famous sentence is drawn was the first piece of philosophy written in French and not in Latin, which was a major revolution at the time. The choice of language was underpinned by the premise that humans are rational beings and that therefore everyone can make with a proper use of their reason to attain knowledge. The method that Descartes proposed forms the basis of our modern sciences. The first rule is to doubt everything that appears to be real unless I have certain knowledge of it. This allows me to break down natural holes into their ultimate components and then to reconstruct laws of nature from these simple elements through deduction and experiment. In Descartes' Principles of Philosophy from 1647, the connection between reason, language, and place is expressed in the image of the tree of philosophy, whose roots were metaphysics, whose trunk was physics, and whose branches were the other sciences, including medicine, mechanics, morals, etc. For Descartes, the world has a rational foundation, and it is the task of metaphysics to uncover these first principles. These principles exist a priori, that is, prior to our experience of the world. The laws of nature can be deduced from these principles, which is why physics is the trunk of the tree and the branches of the tree are applications of these laws to specific areas of knowledge. The purpose of Descartes' scientific methods was, quote, to make us like masters and possessors of nature by providing the, the kind of knowledge that would lead to ever more powerful technology, the invention of an infinity of artifices that would enable us to enjoy without any pain the fruits of the earth and all the goods to be found here. Interestingly enough, Descartes was also a deeply religious thinker. One of the goals of his philosophy was to demonstrate that his scientific methodology was underpinned by God and indeed was reflected in God's creation, comprising a world designed for us and our purposes. In this sense, one can say that for Descartes, it was really modern science that had the task to fulfill the commandment recorded in Genesis 1.28. And God said to them, to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. Many scholars see in this biblical injunction one of the roots of our current environmental predicament. But what seems certain is that it was Descartes' connection between religion and modern science that turbocharged the exploitation of the Earth's resources as a legitimate endeavor. The chestnut root scene tells the history of the breakdown of Western metaphysics and of this, the dissolution of the Cartesian subject. That is the idea that the human individual as a rational being and of the world as something structured by the principles of human reason. So it's orderly, meaningful, accessible by means of intellections. So 
Descartes' worldview is all three vertical and ascendant. By contrast, in Sartre, the world is all roots, it's horizontal and it's worldly, illustrated by Sartre's counter-proposition, I exist, therefore I am. As we shall see in Sartre's critique of Descartes and modern rationalism, he's not particularly concerned with its implications for the environment. Nevertheless, perhaps Sartre's deconstruction of modern rationalism is a first step towards a different thinking about nature. Sartre replaces reason, order, and intelligibility by absurdity, contingency, and meaninglessness. In the novel, these three concepts occur to Roquetin, our hero, post factum, a posteriori, after his experience. For during his vision, he's captured by the root and it's precisely his capacity to think rationally and to express what he experiences and perceives through language that fails him. Quote, the diversity of things, their individuality, were only an appearance of veneer. This veneer had melted, leaving soft, monstrous lumps in disorder, naked, with a frightful and obscene nakedness. In vain, I repeated, this is a root. It didn't take hold anymore, end of quote. Roquetin discovers that the world, the words we use to describe are just labels, and there's nothing behind our language that justifies existence. There's no reason for anything to exist at all, including himself. He realizes that there's something deeply incomprehensible about the world, something that withdraws from rational categorizations, just brute nakedness against which everything is superfluous. It's frightening, horrifying, sickening. Nausea is all that Roquetin is left with. Roquetin's becoming self-aware and self-conscious is, is not a peaceful meditation as in Descartes. In a state of ecstasy, the world with its flux of images thrust themselves on him. The root takes over, merges with him, becomes indiscernible from him. Quote, I was nowhere. I was floating. I was not surprised. I knew it was the world, the naked world revealing itself all at once. And I choked with rage at this gross, absurd being. Okita is left feeling alienated and out of place as he accepts that there exists no fundamental difference between himself and the root. As such, Sartre's chestnut root becomes emblematic of our homelessness in a world that is not made for to serve our purposes and not meant to be mastered through science. Thrown into an inhospitable world where we realize that there's no special place or divinely revealed task, no moral destiny that would distinguish us above nature and elevate our role in this world, all we are left with is nothingness. For Sartre, this bleak endpoint also represents a starting point for a new philosophy, existentialism as a humanism. He discovers that what distinguishes us is our capacity to freely project the possibility of our existence. We are free to give meaning to our lives, not the fact that we are born, but the meaning we give to our life is what we are free to and solely responsible for. And neither religion nor science can do this for us. 
This may be why, after all, the chestnut root scene concludes on a rather cheerful note. Roquetin, he gets up from the bench and he walks to the gate of the public garden. And he's now standing, he's vertical at the gate, placed at the threshold between a world we cannot access and, and our world, which is nothing but, but illusion. He turns around and looks back. He catches a smile on the face of the garden. Then the garden smiled at me. Roquetin cannot help project himself onto the garden, looking back at himself, smiling. Sartre is all too aware of this problem of, of anthropomorphism, of projecting, of seeing the world as it were through our eyes. On the flip side, however, this projection of meaning creates a human world, a friendly and comforting world in which we have a place and a role to play. So at the gate, looking back, Bogotin is now calm, contemplative, serene. He's watching for a long time. Rooted in rootlessness is perhaps that secret of existence that reveals itself to Rocketin. Where does Sartre's reflection on human uprootedness leave us? I want to draw your attention to another ending of this chestnut scene, namely the moment when Roquetin's vision ends as rapidly and unexpectedly as it began. Then all at once, nothing was left but the yellow earth around me out of which dead branches were rose upwards. This last sentence is perhaps an anticipation of the scorched earth towards which we are heading in the Anthropocene. Sartre deploys images of the root to depict our place, or rather loss of place in the world. Ironically, we could say that Sartre might be missing the forest for the trees. Although he's critical of modern rationalism and modern science, in their attempt to completely demystify and subdue the earth, he does not follow his experience with the chestnut root into the earth and ask himself whether we could not reroute ourselves in the earth and establish a new relationship to nature. There's a plant blindness in Sartre's humanism that is representative of the traditional neglect of plant life in the history of Western philosophy and literature. The term plant blindness was coined in the late 90s to define, quote, this inability to see or notice plants in our environment, leading to the inability to see the importance of plants in the biosphere and human affairs. The main purpose of contemporary plant studies, by contrast, is to re-evaluate the life of plants, the way we represent and interact with them. Sartre does not provide an answer to the problem of our disconnectedness from the earth. And this existentialist blindness is perhaps the root of the problem, since it widens the gap of the world and our world. So Sartre's depiction of plant life in nausea is in this sense representational of the traditional view that plant life and human life, nature and culture, earth and world are incommensurable. Can we say that Sartre's Roquetin expresses a widespread rhizophobia in our contemporary culture, a fear of roots? 
Do we pack ourselves in, into ever greater cities out of some fear of encroachment of the vegetal world? Religion and certain philosophers tell us that we're special and set apart from other living things. And so, as humans bend all Earth systems to our will, we threaten the survival of other species. But now, with climate change, our actions are coming back to bite us. Professor Lem suggests we need to change the way we think about our place in the natural order and learn from plants about our responsibility to the planet. She says there's an alternative view of our relationship with nature than that presented by Sartre's character, Rock Ayrton, in the novel Nausea. Orkita's identification of the human being with the existence of the root leads to an idea of meaninglessness of existence, anxiety and despair. But this is not the case for other philosophers in the Western tradition who have seen in much more positive light this identification of human and plant life, precisely because it expresses the rootedness of our ideas of truth and what it means to be human in our terrestrial being. In fact, the Latin etymology of human is thought to derive from the word for man, homo, and the word of earth, humus. For example, Aristotle argues that the human being is literally a plant because its soul has three parts, the vegetal, the plant part, the repetitive animal, and the rational human part. The vegetal part of the soul is responsible for growth, reproduction, and nutrition, the appetitive for governing desire and movement, and the rational part of the soul comprises human reason and language. According to Aristotle, all three parts of the soul continue in the human so that to some extent we will always remain plants. In one of his treatises on biology, Aristotle introduces the curious hypothesis of the inverted plant. According to this hypothesis, animals and humans are some sort of inverted plants with their roots growing upwards. I will return to this idea of uprootedness um, in a moment. So whereas Sartre turns Descartes' rationalism upside down, 19th century philosopher, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche inverts Aristotle's philosophy of nature by claiming that actually this locus of the production of thought and human reason and language in Aristotle remains within the vegetal part of our soul. So while Aristotle maintained a hierarchical conception of biological life with plants occupying the lowest rung of the ladder and human the highest, Nietzsche will claim that the plants are in fact ahead of us when it comes to connecting with the earth and the planetary conditions of life. In fact, Nietzsche will say we actually never superseded the capacity of the vegetative soul for nutrition, growth, and reproduction. And he says, well, philosophy itself actually becomes but the most refined and sublimated version of this trapticon, which is the vegetal part of the soul, where the act of thinking embodies the living legacy of the vegetal soul's signature capacity. Even in our highest endeavors, we remain sublimated plants. End of quote. This is because Nietzsche thinks about the human being from the perspective of its embodied existence, or what he also refers to as life. Life in Nietzsche is short for nutrition, growth, reproduction. So, for example, he thought that the relation of humans to the pursuit of truth 
was primarily a question that having to do with embodiment, not what true truth is, but how it can be embodied or lived becomes the question of his philosophy. Or as he put it in his famous book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, he was after philosophy that remains true to the earth. For Nietzsche, the key responsibility for future generations of philosophers is to care for the earth and part and parcel of this ethics of care is the idea that we need to retranslate the human being back into nature and reconnect with other than human life. Sartre assumed that for human purposes, the earth was an inert background, always there, meaningless, the backdrop of our human drama. But we know now that this is not the case, that this backdrop is a complex earth system that makes our lives possible, that our capitalist industrial civilization is in the process of destabilizing. In a recent book, the post-colonial historian Deepesh Chagrabati, one of the world's leading experts on the history of climate change, distinguishes between the global and the planetary perspectives. Whereas the term global in globalization refers to, quote, a story of how we created this world, how we converted this planet into a spherical human domain in which technology, empire, capitalism run their course, for Chagrabati, the same term, global, in the expression global warming, refers to an entirely different history, a planetary history. The planetary references a much older dimension of existence that does not have the human species in view. The planetary refers to a history of life on Earth in which the Earth system is the main actor, and even it responds to external circumstances, as for instance in this very slight change in the Earth's inclination towards the sun that led through a complex path to a change in the atmosphere where new oxygen levels eliminated previous life forms based on nitrogen and led to life forms that thrive on oxygen and to our current atmospheric composition. The planetary perspective is relevant for plant studies as insofar as plants, that is organisms capable of photosynthesis, were the key players in this transformation of the atmosphere, which has also been referred to as the great oxygenation event or oxygen catastrophe, leading to the spread of aerobic forms of life and the extinction of non-aerobic forms. This makes plant life not only one of the oldest forms of life, over 350 million years old, in comparison to the Homo sapiens, approximately 300,000 years old, but also shows us, as plant biologist Monica Galliano puts it, that plants are perhaps the most fundamental form of life, providing sustenance and thus enabling the existence of all animals, including humans. Plants represent about 99% of the Earth's biomass, and it is thanks to them that the Earth produces an atmosphere that makes life possible for the vast majority of species. From an existentialist point of view, we are both us and the environment of our lives. 
But we have the capacity to design these circumstances as an enveloping medium that closes us off to the meaninglessness of sheer existence, while at the same time protecting and comforting us like a warm house in the middle of the cold winter. But for me, the point of contemporary plant studies is precisely to break through our artificial environments and to connect us to unknown earthly and aerial worlds, just like the plant's unique position in the world, holding together both earth and sky. Plants live two lives, an earthly life with their roots deeply immersed in the soil, underground, tonic and nocturnal, and an aerial life turned towards our star, immersed in its sunlight, visible and interacting with other species. This is why the Italian philosopher Emanuele Coccia argues that plants, plant life, is, quote, is the most intensive, radical and paradigmatic form of being in the world. And that therefore we need to interrogate plants if we want to understand the meaning of human existence and its dependence on environmental constraints that are not simply at its disposal and that cannot be custom designed or re-engineered. Perhaps it is because we are so dependent on plants for our planetary existence that they bear the brunt of our drive to find security within artificial worlds of our own making. It is not only the clearing of land to make space for urban dwelling, for animal husbandry and for mining. It is not only that the industrialization of agriculture requires use of pesticides that poison our daily lives without our, us being aware of it. But plants also bear the brunt of most genetic manipulation and engineering. The patents of 90% of genetically modified crops, for example, grown in the United States, is owned by a handful of powerful seed and pesticide manufacturers. Precisely because human life is so plant-like, there's something particularly uncanny about the genetic modification of plants insofar as it suggests the ease with which we are in the process of transitioning to so-called transhuman future in which genetically enhanced human life will itself be patented and possibly owned by the equivalents of former Monsanto and now Bayer. In order to resist an existentialist ecology that thunders an irrational earth from our meaningful world, plant philosopher Michael Mader speaks of the environmental sagacity of plants that stand in relation with their environment, both as radically context-dependent and yet open systems that, quote, thanks to a series of internal communicative networks, biochemical and hormonal channels, or synaptic cell-to-cell -cell communications, and external communication pathways that connect it to its environment. Plants are inseparable from their environment and vice versa, their environment is inseparable from them to the point that one can no longer distinguish between an inside and an outside. Completely immersed in their environment, their life is fully enmeshed with the life of others. They are radically non-identitary, always exposed and open to the other, and always growing in communities with others. 
this insight into the life of plants has important ethical implications because our Western tradition, political and legal traditions, teach us that our security ultimately depends on distinguishing ourselves from what surrounds us by erecting borders between those who are our friends and those who are our enemies. Borders between what is mine and what is thine. Conversely, what we may learn from the life of plants is what it means to be human on a planet that must be necessarily shared with other forms of life and what it takes to coexist with and co-depend on other forms of life. For us to reconnect with the earth and the cosmos like plants would require the cultivation of respect and care for human and other human life, including new ways of communicating with other than human life. How plants communicate with their environment has led scholars in plant biology to ask the question of plant language and reject this Aristotelian hierarchy of the soul. So Monica Galliano, for example, invites us, quote, to a speaking without words, a listening without hearing, that humankind must learn to cultivate for the sake of the future we wish to share with each other and with other beings. From an earth system science perspective, what appears remarkable about plants is their capacity to gather and hold together both the earth and the starry heavens in the form of sunlight through which they participate in fashioning the atmosphere for life on this planet. Given this double nature, Kocha speaks of plants as cosmic mediators. Considered from a planetary dimension, plant life on Earth can also teach us that we need to be mindful not only about the atmospheric conditions of life on Earth, but also to the astral dimensions of life, which nowadays are studied by astrobiology. Its findings are bringing about a renaissance of a very ancient belief, namely that life on Earth may have come from the stars and that we ourselves made up of the same stuff as stars. If plants are alive, suggests the necessity to be in communication with other than human worlds, then we need to be open to the possibility of what Nietzsche called a star friendship. In the Western tra philosophical tradition, the idea that the secret of human nature is hidden in the stars finds probably its most prominent source in Plato, who himself absorbed and reworked the science and the myth he received from older African and Asian cultures. In the Timaeus, Plato defines the human being as a celestial plant whose roots are in the heavens, in the stars. Plato imagines the human being as rooted upwards in the divine cosmos. I read you the quote. We should think of the most authoritative part of our soul as a guardian spirit given to each of us by God, living in the summit of the body, which can properly be said to lift us from the earth towards our home in the heavens, as if we were a heavenly and not an earthbound plant. For where the soul first grew into being, from there, our divine part attaches us by the head to the heavens like a plant by its root and keeps our body upright. End of quote. 
our rootedness in other worlds as the mark of our distinction underpinning our capacity for intellectual transcendence is not uncommon among the ancient Greeks. For the ancient Greeks, philosophy was before all cosmology because they thought that it is in the perfect circular movement of the starry world, the supraterrestrial dimension of the cosmos, that we find orientation and moral guidance. Therefore, philosophers with a platonic orientation were typically depicted as gazing upwards, gazing upwards into the heavens in contrast to the followers and disciples of Aristotle, whose philosophical perspective is oriented downwards towards the exploration of material forms of life, such as animals and plants. The upward gaze is, of course, a pitfall that the Greeks were well aware of. And you may all know the anecdote of the Greek sage and astronomer Thales, who left his house to look at the stars and fell into a ditch, causing his slave to burst out into laughter. The message here is clear. No matter how deep and far we think, we should keep our feet well planted on the earth. We are not only celestial beings, we are also earthlings. Now, there's another version of the Thales story. In this version, Thales actually intentionally went into the earth and dug a well in order to observe more clearly the night skies. He did so because he wanted to understand and predict the weather. He was developing meteorology. And with this knowledge, he speculated on the grain market and he became actually very wealthy. So the study of the cosmos has always had a speculative side to it, speculative in a philosophical and mathematical sense, but also in an economic sense. Today, the speculative drive behind the exploration of space seems to animate those like Elon Musk, who are on the transhumanist mission to abandon this earth and transform our species into, quote, a multi-planet species and true spacefaring civilization, end of quote, viewing planets and stars from the perspective of their inexhaustible extractivist potential. The problem with looking at the stars from Plato's perspective, according to um, the French ecological thinker Bruno Latour, is that we project onto space a mathematical geometry that gives us the illusion that we can formulate and so anticipate the trajectories of everything under and beyond the sun. The danger of such celestial visions is that they make us lose sight of the contingencies of our earthly atmosphere, of the unpredictable and far messy and fragile systems of feedback cycles and loops that characterize the earth. But do we have to choose between the earth and the heavens? What can the dual nature of plants tell us about how to be doubly rooted above and below? I begin this presentation with an image from literature, and I would like to end with another literary image, this time drawn from Fyodor Dostoevsky's masterpiece, The Brothers Karamazov. This image is paradigmatic of a different sense of rootedness, a rootedness in other worlds that draws us back to the earth and our responsibility for it. So the, pas the passage I want to share with you is from the, the conversations and exhortations of Father Sosima. 
Alyosha, one of the three brothers Karamazovs, decided to become a monk, and he adopts Father Zosima's teaching that the root of all love emerges from our living bond with other worlds. We have been given a precious mystic sense of our living bond with the other world, with the higher heavenly world, and the roots of our thoughts and feelings are not here, but in other worlds. In contrast to Plato, who understands our divine origins in other worlds as symbolic for our capacity for knowledge as a center of gravity pulling us upwards and away from the earth, Zosima inverts Plato's celestial plant, reconnecting us with life on earth. Love the animals, love the plants, love everything. If you love everything, you will perceive the divine mystery in things. Once you perceive it, you will begin to comprehend it better every day. And you will come at last to love the whole world with an all-embracing love. For Zosima, not knowledge and reason, but love and compassion are the nature of the human being. This nature, however, does not belong to us, but it is a gift we received from other worlds, a gift that comes with a calling, a responsibility for care for the earth. So whereas Sartre's existentialist hero is self-centered, perhaps even solipsistic, closed onto his or herself, for Zosima, our role in the world is all about responding to our relationship with others. Like a plant, our role is to be a cosmic mediator, building bridges between worlds, which requires us to acknowledge our dependency on other forms of life. Love and care for the earth allows us to see that everything is in everything and that everything belongs to everything. As such, our rootedness in other worlds does not make us strangers to the earth as in Plato, rather it predestines us to be open to alterity, to multiple worlds and perspectives. So today, in the face of climate change and environmental catastrophes, love and responsibility for and of the earth is perhaps needed more than ever, especially to challenge those who are on the transhumanist mission of abandoning the earth. Instead, what we need is attention to the many worlds that are found here on earth in a multi-species and symbiotic sense of coexistence and interrelationality between living beings and living matter, rather than set out to further colonize other planets. Interestingly, Zosima's teaching resonates with Gatry Spivak's post-colonial approach to planetary thinking. Like the French post-structuralists, for her as well, quote, to be human is to be intended towards the other, end of quote. And like Zosima, she conceives the openness to the other through the figure of the gift that we refer to by the name of mother, nature, God, earth, etc. Spivak invites us to imagine ourselves like Zosima as planetary subjects rather than global agents, as planetary creatures rather than global entities, and insists that to overcome the current predicament, we must persistently educate ourselves in this peculiar mindset. Professor Vanessa Lem, Executive Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University, 
who delivered this year's Max Charlesworth oration. The more we learn about plants and animals, the more we have to revise the view that humans are uniquely intelligent. In This Big Ideas, broadcast three years ago, plant scientists describe how plants talk to each other, respond to sound, share resources and think ahead. This discussion is hosted by Chris Daniels, an adjunct professor in biology at the University of South Australia and the University of Adelaide. His guests are Monica Galliano, an Associate Professor of Evolutionary Ecology at the University of Sydney, and Dr Brian Pickles, a lecturer in ecology at the University of Reading. Brian begins with the story of the giraffe and the acacia tree, how the trees warn their neighbours that they're in danger of being eaten. Giraffes, when they're eating uh, the leaves of acacia trees, they really don't like uh, tannins. And tannins are a plant defense chemical uh, that they activate in response to herbivory. So when a giraffe goes and starts eating the leaves of an acacia, uh, it's able to get these nice, fresh, tasty leaves. But the plant doesn't like this very much, and it starts producing tannins. And it also produces this chemical, uh, ethylene, which is spread through the air, and when another acacia detects the ethylene, it starts to trigger its own defense response. So the nearby acacias will start to produce tannin in response to a different plant being attacked by a giraffe. And uh, researchers have seen that giraffes will actually uh, go quite a long distance from the first tree they've been eating to try and get around this uh, active plant communication response. So thanks for that one, Chris. You surprised me that, with that That's today. Luck to open with a curly one. <laughs> and the great thing about that is giraffes actually know that the plants are secreting these chemicals and telling other plants. So they start feeding downwind so they can sneak up on the acacia um, in, in order to make sure they eat it quickly before it starts doing this stuff. So it was really one of the first demonstrations that one plant is sending signals to other plants. And that was in Airborne, but Monica, you've shown us that corn seedlings make clicking sounds. And you actually founded the whole area of plant bioacoustics. Maybe you can tell us about your experiments with corn and sound. Well, I guess, um, again, coming from an animal behavioral background, sound is one of those things that is uh, widely studied and it would make sense to any human as well because most of our communication is uh, so focused on sound and how we speak and language and all of that associated to it. And um, so when you come from an animal background in, in, in research, uh, the question of sound is just like, yeah, and which, which model are you using for that? But it's nothing special. Uh, and yet, uh, when you look at other systems, suddenly you see that uh, one of the best signal to transfer information, acoustics, might be, be totally overlooked. And so there is, I guess, many possibilities for that, but two are the obvious. One, they simply, that system doesn't use it. Or two, they use it and we haven't looked at it. And so it was a mixture of uh, personal interaction and with various bodies of knowledge, including the literature from anthropology, where a lot of the stories from all sorts of cultures around the world talk about humans and plant communicating and literally communicating using sound. 
and um, humans listening to the sound of plants. And I was like, okay, and this story has been there for a long time. So either it's a story that we really like and keep <laughs> repeating, but from an evolutionary perspective, evolution, even in terms of culture and knowledge, has a tendency to kind of remove the stuff that is not really useful. So for a story like that to remain in our culture for so long, well, maybe there is something in it that it's useful. And, uh, and so the first step was to test whether, well, do plants actually emit any sound? Or do they perceive sound? Can they? And uh, so the experiment that you're referring to with the corn was kind of the first attempt to test for that question. And the way in which you do that is quite straightforward. Uh, you um, play back, which is something, again, is a technique that is used like routinely with animals. So you record a particular frequency and then you play it back. And, uh, and you see what the other, in this case the plant, uh, is going to do in response, if he's responding at all. And so when we did that, um, we played back, you know, first 100 hertz, and then 200 hertz, 300 hertz. And the question, of course, is like, okay, if this was a bird, maybe you think the bird is going to fly away if he doesn't like the sound, but what is the plant going to do? Plants don't do things, right? They don't behave. But of course, when you ask this kind of question, you have to be open to be shown what the other can do, even if you're not sure exactly what it is that you're looking for. And so what the plant, uh, in this case, what the corn seedlings did was at a particular frequency, only at a particular frequency, their roots started bending towards the sound source instead of growing straight to gravity. And they only did that between 200 and 300 hertz. And then for the other frequencies that we were playing back, they were just growing with gravity straight. And of course, that doesn't say that they didn't hear those frequencies, it just says that they're not kind of interested. And um, why, we don't know. And why would they lie 200, 300 hertz? We also don't know yet. But of course, that opens, and I think this is a good sign of healthy science when there are more questions open than no answers found. And this is exactly one of those situations where, yeah, too many questions. So that opens, of course, the, the question that most people ask, which is how can plants sense if they don't have neurons? In a very different way to the way that we sense things, of course. Plants can detect chemicals and respond to the production of chemicals. They respond to enzymes and uh, other compounds that are exuded into the soil, for example, by other organisms. And of course, you've shown all sorts of different responses. Uh, we were talking earlier about um, Kew Gardens uh, in the UK has all these mimosa plants. I'm sure most people have heard of mimosas. Those are the ones where you touch the leaves and then they curl up as a defense response. In Kew Gardens, they don't curl up anymore because so many people have been walking around, oh, look at the mimosa. See if it will respond, and they don't anymore. So you, you can tell that, uh, that they're able to respond to touch as well. Well, my uh, take on that would be slightly different. <laughs> <laughs> the question then would be this, why would you need neurons? Why would you need a brain and neurons, or so the central nervous system, to be sensitive to the environment? You might have worked out something very smart about processing information without having to do something so costly as the 
creation of a brain. So, so really, if you think about all of the information that's coming into any organism, it can actually be broken down to waves or chemicals bringing about various sorts of electrical changes in membranes. Yeah. So it's not hard, actually, to have a, a chemical or physical change causing a response in a membrane that brings around a cascade of effects. It doesn't matter whether it's, it's chemical, whether it, we just call it auditory because we've got ears. Well, also we have to remember that uh, what is a neuron? Neurons are cells which are specialised in transferring, transducing a signal of whatever kind into a common language. It's like uh, the Esperando of the uh, cellular uh, world. And so they take all of these different signals and they transform them into electrochemical signals. Well, if there is one group of organisms that is absolutely masters at this, that is plants. Okay, so if you think the brain is a special way of processing lots of electrochemical signals, Brian, tell us about root tips. Root tips. So, most of the time when you think about, or when, when we're thinking about plants, we're not thinking about what's going on below ground. Often when I go to a conference, I like to show a picture of a tree and put a big arrow pointing at it saying, this is not a tree, and then give people a few minutes to say, what on earth is he on about? Well, there's just as much going on below the ground that we don't see as there is above it. Uh, root tips of plants are interacting with the soil environment to extract water and to extract nutrients, uh, which then get transferred into the tree. Except most of the time, it's not actually the plants that are doing that. And uh, most of my research is focused on these fungi that form symbiotic associations with plants, and they colonize the roots of plants. They're much smaller, they're able to get into all these fine pores in the soil where there's water locked up uh, and nutrients, and they can break down some of these nutrients, and then they transfer them back to the plant. So, those root tips are interacting with other organisms in the soil to do all sorts of different things. They're exuding chemicals into the soil, which could be uh, chemicals for defense or chemicals to signal to other organisms that they would like to form an association. Uh, and they're exploring this environment, usually below our feet, and we don't give it a second thought. They're a kingdom unto themselves, not plant, not animal. Indeed, and they're eukaryotes, like us. They are heterotrophs, which means they don't produce their own energy, they extract it from uh, other living material. So plants are autotrophs, they photosynthesize, they generate uh, their own sugars through that process, and uh, fungi have to get their carbon through breaking down uh, other biological material uh, or forming associations with uh, plants or other organisms that can produce their own food, essentially. Yeah, they can be parasites as well as... They can be parasites, and normally when people think about fungi, they either think about the mushrooms uh, that they're eating with their dinner, or they think about uh, fungal diseases uh, of humans, or fungal <laughs> diseases of trees. Very rarely do we give much thought to all of the really important uh, positive mutualisms that are going on in the environment due to fungi. So you've got this situation where plants exchange information through leaves and flowers, got that. Now we're saying that root tips are really important for both giving out and receiving signals. And you've got these mycorrhizal fungi spreading all out and connecting. How did you show that? Tell me the experiment with the bear and the salmon. 
This isn't one that I've done myself, but I know the people who are involved in it. When salmon come into a river, they have just come from the open ocean. The open ocean uh, has a different quantity of a uh, nitrogen isotope in it. Most of the time when we think about isotopes, we're thinking about Geiger counters and radioactivity in science fiction movies. Uh, but all elements have uh, different isotopes that may be stable or they may be radioactive. And it's a measure of uh, the number of neutrons that that element carries. A lot of the experiments that I've been doing uh, look at different isotopes uh, of elements, and depending on the environment that the isotope comes from, it can tell you about uh, where that actually originated. So what the group that have been working with bears and salmon uh, have been looking at is you can actually see the signal of marine nitrogen that has been introduced into a forest by salmon. So the salmon come into the river from the marine environment, bears catch the salmon, and then they take them into the forest to eat them. And then the rotting remains of the salmon get absorbed by fungi, and you can trace this uh, 15N from the salmon into nearby trees because it's been picked up by fungi and then transferred through their hyphae into the trees. And uh, there's been some great research in British Columbia showing that you can actually see when there have been really good salmon runs based on the N15 content uh, in trees. So it actually leaves uh, a characteristic uh, trace inside the tree that you can detect by doing elemental analysis with some very expensive machinery. The Secret Life of Plants. You can hear the full discussion by clicking the link on the Big Ideas webpage. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.